Section 35 of The Letters of Mark Twain Complete. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Letters of Mark Twain Complete by Mark Twain. Volume 4, Chapter 33. Letters 1893 to Mr. Hall mrs clemens and others florence business troubles puddinhead wilson joan of arc at the players new york the reader may have suspected that young mr hall in new york was having his troubles he was by this time one-third owner in the business of charles l webster and company as well as its general manager the business had been drained of its capital one way and another partly by the publication of unprofitable books partly by the earlier demands of the typesetter but more than all by the manufacturing cost and agents commissions demanded by l a l that is to say the eleven large volumes constituting the library of american literature which webster had undertaken to place in a million american homes there was plenty of sale for it, indeed, that was just the trouble, for it was sold on payments, small monthly payments, while the cost of manufacture and the liberal agents' commissions were cash items, and it would require a considerable period before the dribble of collections would swell into a tide large enough to satisfy the steady outflow of expense. A sale of twenty-five sets a day meant prosperity on paper, but unless capital could be raised from some other source to make and market those books through a period of months, perhaps even years to come, it meant bankruptcy in reality. It was Hall's job, with Clemens to back him, to keep their ship afloat on these steadily ebbing financial waters. It was also Hall's affair to keep Mark Twain cheerful, to look pleasant himself, and to show how they were steadily getting rich because orders were pouring in, though a cloud that resembled bankruptcy loomed always a little higher upon the horizon. If Hall had not been young and an optimist, he would have been frightened out of his boots early in the game. As it was, he made a brave steady fight, kept as cheerful and stiff an upper lip as possible, always hoping that something would happen, some grand sale of his other books, some unexpected inflow from the typesetter interests, anything that would sustain his ship until the LAL tide should turn and float it into safety. Clemens had faith in Hall, and was fond of him. He never found fault with him. He tried to accept his encouraging reports at their face value. He lent the firm every dollar of his literary earnings not absolutely needed for the family's support. He signed new notes. He allowed Mrs. Clemens to put in such remnants of her patrimony as the typesetter had spared. The situation in 1893 was about as here outlined. The letters to Hall of that year are frequent and carry along the story. To any who had formed the idea that Mark Twain was irascible, exacting, and fault-finding, they will perhaps be a revelation. To Fred J. Hall in New York Florence, January 1, 93 Dear Mr. Hall, Yours of December 19 is to hand, and Mrs. Clemens is deeply distressed, for she thinks I've been blaming you or finding fault with you 
about something. But most surely that cannot be. I tell her that although I am prone to write hasty and regrettable things to other people, I am not a bit likely to write such things to you. I can't believe I have done anything so ungrateful. If I have, pile coals of fire on my head, for I deserve it. I wonder if my letter of credit isn't an encumbrance. Do you have to deposit the whole amount it calls for? If that is so, it is an encumbrance, and we must withdraw it and take the money out of soak. I have never made drafts upon it except when compelled, because I thought you deposited nothing against it, and only had to put up money that I drew upon it, that therefore the less I drew, the easier it would be for you. I am dreadfully sorry I didn't know it would be a help to you to let my monthly check pass over a couple of months. I could have stood that by drawing what is left of Mrs. Clemens' letter of credit, and we would have done it cheerfully. I will write Whitmore to send you the century check for a thousand dollars, and you can collect Mrs. Dodge's two thousand dollars. Whitmore has power of attorney, which I think will enable him to endorse it over to you in my name. If you need that three thousand dollars, put it in the business and use it, and send Whitmore the company's note for a year. If you don't need it, turn it over to Mr. Halsey and let him invest it for me. I've a mighty poor financial head, and I may be all wrong, but tell me if I am wrong in supposing that in lending my own firm money at six percent I pay four of it myself and so really get only a percent? Now don't laugh if that is stupid. Of course, my friend declined to buy a quarter interest in the LAL for $200,000. I judged he would. I hoped he would offer $100,000, but he didn't. If the cholera breaks out in America, a few months hence, we can't borrow or sell. But if it doesn't, we must try hard to raise $100,000. I wish we could do it before there's a cholera scare. I have been in bed two or three days with a cold, but I got up an hour ago, and I believe I'm all right again. How I wish I had appreciated the need of a hundred thousand dollars when I was in New York last summer. I would have tried my best to raise it. It would make us able to stand a thousand sets of LAL per month, but not any more, I guess. You have done magnificently with the business, and we must raise the money somehow to enable you to reap the reward of all that labor. Sincerely yours, S. L. Clemens. Whitmore, in this letter, was F. G. Whitmore, of Hartford, Mark Twain's financial agent. The money due from Mrs. Dodge was a balance on Tom Sawyer abroad, which had been accepted by St. Nicholas. Mr. Halsey was a downtown broker. Clemens, who was growing weary of the constant demands of L.A.L., had conceived the idea that it would be well to dispose of a portion of it for enough cash to finance its manufacture. We don't know who the friend was to whom he offered a quarter interest for the modest sum of $200,000, but in the next letter we discover designs on a certain very canny Scotchman of Skybo. To Fred J. Hall in New York, Florence, January 28, 92. 
Dear Mr. Hall, I want to throw out a suggestion and see what you think of it. We have a good start and solid ground under us. We have a valuable reputation. Our business organization is practical, sound, and well devised. Our publications are of a respect-worthy character and of a money-breeding species. Now then, I think that the association with us of someone of great name and with capital would give our business a prodigious impetus. That phrase is not too strong. As I look at it, it is not money merely that is needed. If that were all, the firm has friends enough who would take an interest in a paying venture. We need someone who has made his life a success, not only from a business standpoint, but with that achievement back of him, has been great enough to make his power felt as a thinker and a literary man. It is a pretty usual thing for publishers to have this sort of partners. Now you see what a power Carnegie is, and how far his voice reaches in the several lines I speak of? Do you know him? You do by correspondence, or purely business talks about his books, but personally I mean, so that it would not be an intrusion for you to speak to him about this desire of mine, for I would like you to put it before him, and if you fail to interest him in it, you will probably get at least some valuable suggestions from him. I'll enclose a note of introduction. You needn't use it if you don't need to. Yours, S.L.C. P.S. Yes, I think I've already acknowledged the December $1,000 and the January $500, and if another $500 was mailed three days ago, there's no hiatus. I think I reminded you that the new letter of credit does not cover the unexpended balance of the old one, but falls considerably short of it. Do your best with Carnegie, and don't wait to consider any of my intermediate suggestions or talks about our raising half of the $200,000 ourselves. I mean, wait for nothing. To make my suggestion available, I should have to go over and see our no and I don't want to until I can mention Carnegie's name to him as going in with us. My book is typewritten and ready for print. Puddinhead Wilson, A Tale, or Those Extraordinary Twins, if preferable. It makes 82,500 words, 12,000 more than Huck Finn, but I don't know what to do with it. Mrs. Clemens thinks it wouldn't do to go to the American Publishing Company or anywhere outside of our own house. We have no subscription machinery, and a book in the trade is a book thrown away, as far as money profit goes. I am in a quandary. Give me a lift out of it. I will mail the book to you and get you to examine it and see if it is good or if it is bad. I think it is good and I thought the claimant bad when I saw it in print. But as for real judgment, I think I am destitute of it. I am writing a companion to the prince and pauper which is half done and will make 200,000 words, and I have had the idea that if it were gotten up in handsome style with many illustrations and put at a high enough price, maybe the LAL canvases would take it and run it with that book. Would they? 
it could be priced anywhere from four dollars up to ten dollars according to how it was gotten up i suppose i don't want it to go into a magazine s l c i am having several short things typewritered i will send them to you presently i like the century and harpers but i don't know that i have any business to object to the cosmopolitan if they pay as good rates i suppose a man ought to stick to one magazine but that may be only superstition what do you think s l c the companion to the prince and the pauper mentioned in this letter was the story of joan of arc perhaps the most finished of mark twain's literary productions his interest in joan had been first awakened when as a printer's apprentice in hannibal he had found blowing along the street a stray leaf from some printed story of her life that fragment of history had pictured joan in prison insulted and mistreated by ruffians it had aroused all the sympathy and indignation in the boy sam clemens also it had awakened his interest in history and indeed in all literature his love for the character of joan had grown with the years until in time he had conceived the idea of writing her story as far back as the early eighties he had collected material for it and had begun to make the notes one thing and another had interfered and he had found no opportunity for such a story now however in florence in the ancient villa and in the quiet garden looking across the vineyards and olive groves to the dream city along the arno he felt moved to take up the tale of the shepherd girl of france the soldier maid or as he called her the noble child the most innocent the most lovely the most adorable the ages have produced his surroundings and background would seem to have been perfect and he must have written with considerable ease to have completed a hundred thousand words in a period of not more than six weeks perhaps hall did not even go to see carnegie at all events nothing seems to have come of the idea once at a later time mark twain himself mentioned the matter to carnegie and suggested to him that it was poor financiering to put all of one's eggs into one basket meaning into iron but carnegie answered that's a mistake put all your eggs into one basket and watch that basket it was march when clemens felt that once more his presence was demanded in america he must see if anything could be realized from the typesetter or l a l to fred j hall in new york march thirteen ninety three dear mr hall i am busy getting ready to sail the twenty second in the kaiser wilhelm the second i send herewith two magazine articles the story contains thirty eight hundred to four thousand words the diary contains thirty eight hundred words each would make about four pages of the century the diary is a gem if i do say it myself that shouldn't if the cosmopolitan wishes to pay six hundred dollars for either of them or twelve hundred dollars for both gather in the check and i will use the money in america instead of breaking into your treasury if they don't wish to trade for either send the articles to the sentry without naming a price and if their check isn't large enough i will call and abuse them when i come i signed and mailed the notes yesterday 
Yours, S.L.C. Clemens reached New York on the 3rd of April and made a trip to Chicago, but accomplished nothing except to visit the World's Fair and be laid up with a severe cold. The machine situation had not progressed. The financial stringency of 1893 had brought everything to a standstill. The New York Bank would advance Webster and Company no more money. So disturbed were his affairs, so disordered was everything, that sometimes he felt himself as one walking amid unrealities. A fragment of a letter to Mrs. Crane conveys this. I dreamed I was born and grew up and was a pilot on the Mississippi, and a miner and a journalist in Nevada, and a pilgrim in the Quaker City, and had a wife and children and went to live in a villa at Florence. And this dream goes on and on and sometimes seems so real that I almost believe it is real. I wonder if it is. But there's no way to tell, for if one applies tests, they would be part of the dream too, and so would simply aid the deceit. I wish I knew whether it is a dream or real. He saw Warner briefly in America also howells now living in new york but he had little time for visiting on may thirteenth he sailed again for europe on the kaiser wilhelm the second on the night before sailing he sent howells a good-bye word to w d howells in new york city murray hill hotel new york may twelfth eighteen ninety three midnight dear howells I am so sorry I missed you. I am very glad to have that book for sea entertainment, and I thank you ever so much for it. I've had a little visit with Warner at last. I was getting afraid I wasn't going to have a chance to see him at all. I forgot to tell you how thoroughly I enjoyed your account of the country printing office, and how true it all was, and how intimately recognizable in all its details but warner was full of delight over it and that reminded me and i am glad for i wanted to speak of it you have given me a book annie trumbull has sent me her book i bought a couple of books mr hall gave me a choice german book laughlin gave me two bottles of whiskey and a box of cigars i go to see nobly equipped Goodbye, and all good fortune attend you and yours, and upon you all I leave my benediction. Mark. Mention has already been made of the Ross home being very near to Viviani, and the association of the Ross and Clemens families. There was a fine vegetable garden on the Ross estate, and it was in the interest of it that the next letter was written to the Secretary of Agriculture to hon j sterling morton in washington d c editorial department century magazine union square new york april sixth eighteen ninety three to the honorable j sterling morton dear sir your petitioner mark twain a poor farmer of connecticut indeed the poorest one there in the opinion of many desires a few choice breeds of seed-corn maize and in return will zealously support the administration 
in all ways honorable and otherwise to speak by the card i want these things to hurry to italy to an english lady she is a neighbor of mine outside of florence and has a great garden and thinks she could raise corn for her table if she had the right ammunition i myself feel a warm interest in this enterprise both on patriotic grounds and because i have a key to that garden which i got made from a wax impression it is not very good soil still i think she can grow enough for one table and i am in a position to select the table if you are willing to aid in a better countryman and gilda thinks you are please find the signature and address of your petitioner below respectfully and truly yours mark twain sixty seven fifth avenue new york p s a handful of choice southern watermelon seeds would pleasantly add to that lady's employments and give my table a corresponding lift his idea of business values had moderated considerably by the time he had returned to florence he was not hopeless yet but he was clearly a good deal disheartened anxious for freedom to fred j hall in new york florence may thirty ninety three dear mr hall you were to cable me if you sold any machine royalties so i judge you have not succeeded this has depressed me i have been looking over the past year's letters and statements and am depressed still more i am terribly tired of business i am by nature and disposition unfitted for it and i want to get out of it i am standing on the mount morris volcano with help from the machine a long way off doubtless a long way further off than the connecticut company imagines now here is my idea for getting out the firm owes mrs clemens and me i do not know quite how much but it is about a hundred seventy thousand dollars or a hundred seventy five thousand dollars i suppose i make this guess from the documents here whose technicalities confuse me horribly the firm owes other sums but there is stock and cash assets to cover the entire indebtedness and a hundred sixteen thousand six hundred seventy nine dollars twenty cents over is that it in addition we have the l a l plates and copyright worth more than a hundred thirty thousand dollars is that correct that is to say we have property worth about two hundred fifty thousand dollars above indebtedness i suppose or by one of your estimates three hundred thousand dollars the greater part of the first debts to me is in notes paying six per cent the rest the old seventy thousand dollars or whatever it is pays no interest now then will harper or appleton or putnam give me two hundred thousand dollars for those debts and my two-thirds interest in the firm the firm of course taking the mount morris and all such obligations off my hands and leaving me clear of all responsibility i don't want much money i only want first-class notes two hundred thousand dollars worth of them at six per cent payable monthly yearly notes renewable annually for three years with five thousand dollars of the principal 
payable at the beginning and middle of each year. After that, the notes renewable annually, and perhaps a larger part of the principal payable semi-annually. Please advise me and suggest alterations and emendations of the above scheme, for I need that sort of help, being ignorant of business and not able to learn a single detail of it. Such a deal would make it easy for a big firm to pull in a big cash capita and jump LAL up to enormous prosperity. Then your one-third will be a fortune, and I hope to see that day. I enclose an authority to use with Whitmore in case you have sold any royalties, but if you can't make this deal, don't make any. Wait a little and see if you can't make the deal. Do make the deal if you possibly can, and if any presence shall be necessary in order to complete it, I will come over, though I hope it can be done without that. Get me out of business, and I will be yours forever gratefully, S. L. Clemens. My idea is that I am offering my two-thirds of L.A.L. and the business for thirty or forty thousand dollars. Is that it? P.S.S. The new firm could retain my books and reduce them to a ten percent royalty. S.L.C. To Reverend Joseph H. Twitcher in Hartford, Villa Viviani, Settignano, Florence, June nine ninety three. Dear Joe, the sea voyage set me up, and I reached here May twenty seven in tolerable condition nothing left but weakness cough all gone old sir henry layard was here the other day visiting our neighbor janet ross daughter of lady duff gordon and since then i have been reading his account of the adventures of his youth in the far east in a footnote he has something to say about a sailor which i thought might interest you viz this same quartermaster was celebrated among the english in mesopotamia for an entry which he made in his log-book after a perilous storm. The windy and watery elements raged. Tears and prayers was had recourse to, but was of no manner of use. So we hauled up the anchor and got round the point. There. It isn't Ned Wakeman. It was before his day. With love, Mark. They closed Villa Viviani in June, and near the end of the month arrived in Munich in order that Mrs. Clemens might visit some of the German baths. The next letter is written by her and shows her deep sympathy with Hall in his desperate struggle. There have been few more unselfish and courageous women in history than Mark Twain's wife. From Mrs. Clemens to Mr. Hall in New York, June twenty-seventh, 1893 munich dear mr hall your letter to mr clemens of june sixteenth has just reached here as he has gone to berlin for clara i am going to send you just a line in answer to it mr clemens did not realize what trouble you would be in when his letter should reach you or he would not have sent it just then i hope you will not worry any more than you can help do not let our interests weigh on you too heavily we both know you will, as you always have, look in every way to the best interests of all. 
I think Mr. Clemens is right in feeling that he should get out of business, that he is not fitted for it. It worries him too much. But he need be in no haste about it, and, of course, it would be the very farthest from his desire to imperil, in the slightest degree, your interests in order to save his own. I am sure that I voice his wish as well as mine when I say that he would simply like you to bear in mind the fact that he greatly desires to be released from his present anxiety and worry at a time when it shall not endanger your interest or the safety of the business. I am more sorry than I can express that this letter of Mr. Clemens's should have reached you when you were struggling under such terrible pressure. I hope now that the weight is not quite so heavy. He would not have written you about the money if he had known that it was an inconvenience for you to send it. He thought the bookkeeper whose duty it is to forward it had forgotten. We can draw on Mr. Langdon for money for a few weeks until things are a little easier with you. As Mr. Clemens wrote you, we would say, Do not send us any more money at present, if we were not afraid to do so. I will say, however, do not trouble yourself if for a few weeks you are not able to send the usual amount. Mr. Clemens and I have the greatest possible desire not to increase in any way your burdens, and sincerely wish we might aid you. I trust my brother may be able, in his talk with you, to throw some helpful light on the situation. Hoping you will see a change for the better, and begin to reap the fruit of your long and hard labor. Believe me, very cordially yours, Olivia L. Clemens. Hall naturally did not wish to be left alone with the business. He realized that his credit would suffer, both at the bank and with the public, if his distinguished partner should retire. He wrote, therefore, proposing as an alternate, that they dispose of the big subscription set that was swamping them. It was a good plan, if it would work, and we find Clemens entering into it heartily. To Fred J. Hall in New York, Munich, July 3, 93. Dear Mr. Hall, You make a suggestion which has once or twice flitted dimly through my mind heretofore, to wit, sell L.A.L. I like that better than the other scheme, for it is no doubt feasible, whereas the other is perhaps not. The firm is in debt, but L.A.L. is free, and not only free, but as large money owing to it. A proposition to sell that by itself to a big house could be made without embarrassment. We merely confess that we cannot spare capital from the rest of the business to run it on the huge scale necessary to make it an opulent success. It will be selling a good thing for somebody, and it will be getting rid of a load which we are clearly not able to carry. Whoever buys will have a noble good opening, a complete equipment, a well-organized business, a capable and experienced manager, and enterprise not experimental, but under full sale, and immediately able to pay 50% a year on every dollar the publisher shall actually invest in it. I mean, in making and selling the books. I am miserably sorry to be adding bothers and torments to the oversupply which you already have in these hideous times, but I feel so troubled myself 
considering the dreary fact that we are getting deeper and deeper in debt and the lal getting to be a heavier and heavier burden all the time that i must bestir myself and seek a way of relief it did not occur to me that in selling out i would injure you for that i am not going to do but to sell lal will not injure you it will put you in better shape sincerely yours s l clemens to fred j hall in new york july eighth ninety two dear mr hall i am sincerely glad you are going to sell lal i am glad you are shutting off the agents and i hope the fatal book will be out of our hands before it will be time to put them on again with nothing but our non-existent capital to work with the book has no value for us rich or prize as it will be to any competent house that gets it i hope you are making an effort to sell before you discharge too many agents for i suppose the agents are a valuable part of the property we have been stopping in munich for a while but we shall make a break for some country resort in a few days now sincerely yours s l c july eight p s no i suppose i am wrong in suggesting that you wait a moment before discharging your l a l agents in fact i didn't mean that i judge your only hope of salvation is in discharging them all at once since it is their commissions that threaten to swamp us it is they who have eaten up the fourteen thousand dollars i left with you in such a brief time no doubt i feel panicky i think the sale might be made with better advantage however now than later when the agents have got out of the purchaser's reach s l c p s no monthly report for many months those who are old enough to remember the summer of eighteen ninety three may recall it as a black financial season banks were denying credit businesses were forced to the wall it was a poor time to float any costly enterprise the chicago company who was trying to build the machines made little progress the book business everywhere was bad in a brief note following the foregoing letters clemens wrote hall it is now past the middle of july and no cablegram to say the machine is finished we are afraid you are having miserable days and worried nights and we sincerely wish we could relieve you but it is all black with us and we don't know any helpful thing to say or do he enclosed some kind of manuscript proposition for john brisbane walker of the cosmopolitan with the comment it is my ingenious scheme to protect the family against the almshouse for one more year and after that well goodness knows i have never felt so desperate in my life and good reason for i haven't got a penny to my name and mrs clemens hasn't enough laid up with langdon to keep us two months it was like mark twain in the midst of all this turmoil to project an entirely new enterprise his busy mind was always visioning success in unusual undertakings regardless of immediate conditions and the steps necessary to achievement to fred j hall in new york july twenty sixth ninety three dear mr hall 
I hope the machine will be finished this month, but it took me four years and cost me a hundred thousand dollars to finish the other machine after it was apparently entirely complete and set in type like a house afire. I wonder what they call finished. After it is absolutely perfect, it can't go into a printing office until it has had a month's wear running night and day to get the bearing smooth, I judge. I may be able to run over about mid-October. Then, if I find you relieved of LAL, we will start a magazine inexpensive and of an entirely unique sort. Arthur Stedman and his father editors of it. Arthur could do all the work, merely submitting it to his father for approval. The first number should pay, and all subsequent ones, twenty-five cents a number. Cost of first number, twenty thousand copies, two thousand dollars. Give most of them away. Sell the rest. Advertising and other expenses, cost unknown. Send one to all newspapers. It will get a notice, favorable too. But we cannot undertake it until LAL is out of the way. With our hands free and some capital to spare, we could make it hum. Where is the Shelley article? If you have it on hand, keep it, and I will presently tell you what to do with it. Don't forget to tell me. Yours sincerely, S.L.C. The Shelley article mentioned in this letter was the defense of Harriet Scheller, one of the very best of his essays. How he could have written this splendid paper at a time of such distraction passes comprehension. Furthermore, it is clear that he had revised, indeed rewritten, the long story of Puddinhead Wilson. To Fred J. Hall in New York, July 30, 93. Dear Mr. Hall, this time Puddinhead Wilson is a success. Even Mrs. Clemens, the most difficult of critics, confesses it, and without reserves or qualifications. Formerly, she would not consent that it be published either before or after my death. I have pulled the twins apart and made two individuals of them. I have sunk them out of sight. They are mere flitting shadows now, and of no importance. Their story has disappeared from the book. Aunt Betsy Hale has vanished wholly, leaving not a trace behind. Aunt Patsy Cooper and her daughter Rowena have almost disappeared. They scarcely walk across the stage. The whole story is centered on the murder and the trial. From the first chapter, the movement is straight ahead, without divergence or side-play to the murder and the trial. Everything that is done or said, or that happens, is a preparation for those events. Therefore, three people stand up high from beginning to end, and only three. Puddinhead, Tom Driscoll, and his nigger mother, Roxana. None of the others are important or get in the way of the story, or require the reader's attention. Consequently, the scenes and episodes which were the strength of the book formerly are stronger than ever now. When I began this final reconstruction, 
The story contained 81,500 words. Now it contains only 58,000. I have knocked out everything that delayed the march of the story, even the description of a Mississippi steamboat. There's no weather in and no scenery. The story is stripped for flight. Now then, what is she worth? The amount of matter is but 3,000 words short of the American claimant, for which the syndicate paid $12,500. There was nothing new in that story, but the fingerprints in this one is virgin ground, absolutely fresh, and mighty curious and interesting to everybody. I don't want any more syndicating, nothing short of $20,000 anyway, and that I can't get. But won't you see how much the Cosmopolitan will stand? Do your best for me, for I do not sleep these nights for visions of the poorhouse. This, in spite of the hopeful tone of yours of 11th to Langdon, just received, for in me hope is very nearly expiring. Everything does look so blue, so dismally blue. By and by I shall take up the Rhone open-boat voyage again, but not now. We are going to be moving around too much. I have torn up some of it, but still have 15,000 words that Mrs. Clemens approves of, and that I like. I may go at it in Paris again next winter, but not unless I know I can write it to suit me. Otherwise, I shall tackle Adam once more, and do him in a kind of a friendly and respectful way that will commend him to the Sunday schools. I've been thinking out his first life days today and framing his childish and ignorant impressions and opinions for him. We'll ship Puddinhead in a few days. When you get it, cable. Mark Twain, care Brown Ship London, received. I mean to ship Puddinhead Wilson to you, say, tomorrow. It'll furnish me hash for a while, I reckon. I am almost sorry it is finished. It was good entertainment to work at it, and kept my mind away from things. We leave here in about ten days, but the doctors have changed our plans again. I think we shall be in Bohemia, or thereabouts, till near the end of September. Then go to Paris and take a rest. Yours sincerely, S.L.C. P.S. Mrs. Clements has come in since and read your letter and is deeply distressed. She thinks that in some letter of mine I must have reproached you. She says it is wonderful that you have kept the ship afloat in this storm that has seen fleets and fleets go down, that from what she learns of the American business situation from her home letters you have accomplished a marvel in the circumstances, and that she cannot bear to have a word said to you that shall voice anything but praise and the heartiest appreciation, and not the shadow of a reproach will she allow. I tell her I didn't reproach her, and never thought of such a thing, and I said I would break open my letter and say so. Mrs. Clemens says I must tell you not to send any money for a month or two, so that you may be afforded what little relief is in our power. All right, I'm willing. This is honest. But I wish Br'er Chato would send along his little yearly contribution. 
I dropped him a line about another matter a week ago. Asked him to subscribe for the daily news for me. You see, I wanted to remind him in a covert way that it was pay-up time. But doubtless I directed the letter to you or someone else, for I don't hear from him and don't get in the daily news either. To Fred J. Hall in New York, August 6, 93. Dear Mr. Hall, I am very sorry. It was thoughtless in me. Let the reports go. Send me once a month two items, and two only. Cash liabilities, so much. Cash assets, so much. I can perceive the condition of the business at a glance, then, and that will be sufficient. Here we never see a newspaper, but even if we did, I could not come anywhere near appreciating or correctly estimating the tempest you have been buffeting your way through. Only the man who is in it can do that. But I have tried not to burden you thoughtlessly or wantonly. I have been wrought and unsettled in mind by apprehensions, and that is a thing that is not helpable when one is in a strange land and sees his resources melt down to a two-month supply and can't see any sure daylight beyond. The bloody machine offered but a doubtful outlook and will still offer nothing much better for a long time to come. For when Davis's three weeks is up, there's three months tinkering to follow, I guess. That is unquestionably the boss machine of the world, but is the toughest one on profits when it is in an incomplete state that has ever seen the light. Neither Davis nor any other man can foretell with any considerable approach to certainty when it will be ready to get down to actual work in a printing office. No Signature Three days after the foregoing letter was written, he wrote briefly, Great Scott! But it's a long year for you and me. I never knew the almanac to drag so at least since I was finishing that other machine. I watch for your letters hungrily, just as I used to watch for the cablegram saying the machine's finished. But when next week certainly swelled into three weeks sure, I recognized the old familiar tune I used to hear so much. Ward don't know what sick-heartedness is, but he is in a way to find out. Always the quaint form of his humor, no matter how dark the way. We may picture him walking the floor, planning, scheming, and smoking, always smoking, trying to find a way out. It was not the kind of scheming that many men have done under the circumstances, not scheming to avoid payment of debts, but to pay them. To Fred J. Hall in New York, August 14, 93 dear mr hall i am very glad indeed if you and mr langdon are able to see any daylight ahead to me none is visible i strongly advise that every penny that comes in shall be applied to paying off debts i may be in error about this but it seems to me that we have no other course open we can pay a part of the debts owing to outsiders none to the clemenses 
in very prosperous times we might regard our stock and copyrights as assets sufficient with the money owing to us to square up and quit even but i suppose we may not hope for such luck in the present condition of things what i am mainly hoping for is to save my royalties if they come into danger i hope you will cable me so that i can come over and try to save them for if they go i am a beggar i would sail today if i had anybody to take charge of my family and help them through the difficult journeys commanded by the doctors i may be able to sail ten days hence i hope so and expect so we can never resurrect the l a l i would not spend any more money on that book you spoke a while back of trying to start it up again as a preparation to disposing of it but we are not in shape to venture that i think it would require more borrowing and we must not do that your sincerely s l c august sixteen i have thought and thought but i don't seem to arrive in any very definite place of course you will not have an instant safety until the bank debts are paid there is nothing to be thought of but to hand over every penny as fast as it comes in and that will be slow enough or could you secure them by pledging part of our cash assets and i am coming over just as soon as i can get the family moved and settled s l c two weeks following this letter he could endure the suspense no longer and on august twenty ninth sailed once more for america in new york clemens settled down at the players club where he could live cheaply and undertook some literary work while he was casting about for ways and means to relieve the financial situation nothing promising occurred until one night at the murray hill hotel he was introduced by dr clarence c rice to henry h rogers of the standard oil group of financiers rogers had a keen sense of humor and had always been a great admirer of mark twain's work it was a mirthful evening and certainly an eventful one in mark twain's life a day or two later Dr. Rice asked the millionaire to interest himself a little in Clemens's business affairs, which he thought a good deal confused. Just what happened is not remembered now, but from the date of the next letter, we realize that a discussion of the matter by Clemens and Rogers must have followed pretty promptly. To Mrs. Clemens in Europe, October 1893. Dear, dear sweetheart, I don't seem to get even half a chance to write you these last two days, and yet there's lots to say. Apparently, everything is at last settled as to the giveaway of LAL, and the papers will be signed and the transfer made tomorrow morning. Meantime, I've got the best and wisest man in the whole Standard Oil group of multimillionaires a good deal interested in looking into the typesetter. This is private don't mention it he has been searching into that thing for three weeks and yesterday he said to me i find the machine to be all you represented it 
I have here exhaustive reports from my own experts, and I know every detail of its capacity, its immense value, its construction, cost, history, and all about its inventor's character. I know that the New York Company and the Chicago Company are both stupid, and that they are unbusinesslike people, destitute of money, and in a hopeless boggle. Then he told me the scheme he had planned, then said, if I can arrange with these people on this basis, it will take several weeks to find out. I will see to it that they get the money they need. Then the thing will move right along and your royalties will cease to be waste paper. I will post you the minute my scheme fails or succeeds. In the meantime, you stop walking the floor. Go off to the country and try to be gay. You may have to go to walking again, but don't begin till I tell you my scheme has failed. And he added, Keep me posted always as to where you are, for if I need you and can use you, I want to know where to put my hand on you. If I should even divulge the fact that the Standard Oil is merely talking remotely about going into the typesetter, it would send my royalties up. With worlds and worlds of love and kisses to you all, Samuel. With so great a burden of care shifted to the broad financial shoulders of H. H. Rogers, Mark Twain's spirits went ballooning, soaring toward the stars. He awoke, too, to some of the social gaieties about him, and found pleasure in the things that in the hour of his gloom had seemed mainly mockery. We find him going to a Sunday evening at Howells's, to John Mackey's, and elsewhere. To Mrs. Clemens in Paris. December 2, 93. Livy, darling. Last night at John Mackey's, the dinner consisted of soup, raw oysters, corned beef and cabbage, and something like a custard. I ate without fear or stint, and yet have escaped all suggestion of indigestion. The men present were old, gray, Pacific coasters, whom I knew when I and they were young and not gray. The talk was of the days when we went gypsying a long time ago, thirty years. Indeed, it was a talk of the dead, mainly that, and of how they looked, and the harem scam things they did and said. For there were no cares in that life, no aches and pains, and not time enough in the day, and three-fourths of the night, to work off one's surplus vigor and energy. Of the midnight highway robbery joke played upon me with revolvers at my head on the wind-swept and desolate Gold Hill Divide, no witness is left but me, the victim. All the friendly robbers are gone. These old fools last night laughed till they cried over the particulars of that old forgotten crime. John Mackey has no family here but a pet monkey, a most affectionate and winning little devil. But it makes trouble for the servants, for he is full of curiosity and likes to take everything out of the drawers and examine it minutely, and it puts nothing back. The examinations of yesterday count for nothing today. He makes a new examination every day, but he injures nothing. 
I went with Leif into the racket club the other night and played billiards two hours without starting up any rheumatism. I suppose it was all really taken out of me in Berlin. Richard Harden Davis spoke yesterday of Clara's impersonations at Mrs. Van Rensselaer's here and said they were a wonderful piece of work. Livy, dear, I do hope you are comfortable as to quarters and food at the Hotel Brighton. But if you're not, don't stay there. Make one more effort. Don't give it up. Dear heart, this is from one who loves you, which is Samuel. It was decided that Rogers and Clemens should make a trip to Chicago to investigate personally the typesetter situation there. Clemens reports the details of the excursion to Mrs. Clemens in a long subdivided letter, most of which has no general interest and is here omitted. The trip, as a whole, would seem to have been satisfactory. The personal portions of the long Christmas letter may properly be preserved. To Mrs. Clemens in Paris The Players, Christmas, 1893 Number 1 Merry Christmas, my darling, and all my darlings. I arrived from Chicago close upon midnight last night and wrote and sent down my Christmas cablegram before undressing. Merry Christmas. Promising progress made in Chicago. It would get to the telegraph office toward eight this morning and reach you at luncheon. I was vaguely hoping all the past week that my Christmas cablegram would be definite and make you all jump with jubilation. But the thought always intruded itself. You are not going out there to negotiate with a man but with a louse. This makes results uncertain. I was asleep as Christmas struck upon the clock at midnight and didn't wake again till two hours ago. It is now half past ten Christmas morning. I've had my coffee and bread and shan't get out of bed till it is time to dress for Mrs. Lafin's Christmas dinner this evening, where I shall meet Brom Stoker and must make sure about that photo with Irvin's autograph. I will get the picture, and he will attend to the rest, in order to remember and not forget. Well, I will go there with my dress coat wrong side out. It will cause remark, and then I shall remember. Number two and three. I tell you, it was interesting. The Chicago campaign, I mean. On the way out, Mr. Rogers would plan out the campaign while I walked the floor and smoked and assented. Then he would close it up with a snap and drop it, and we would totally change the subject and take up the scenery, etc. Here follows the long detailed report of the Chicago Conference, of interest only to the parties directly concerned. Number 4. We had nice tripe going and coming. Mr. Rogers had telegraphed the Pennsylvania Railroad for a couple of sections for us in the fast train leaving at 2 p.m. the 22nd. The vice president telegraphed back that every berth was engaged, which was not true, it goes without saying, but that he was sending his own car for us. It was mighty nice and comfortable, 
in its parlor it had two sofas which could become beds at night it had four comfortably cushioned cane armchairs it had a very nice bedroom with a wide bed in it which i said i would take because i believed i was a little wider than mr rogers which turned out to be true so i took it it had a doll in back porch railed roofed and roomy and there we sat most of the time and viewed the scenery and talked for the weather was mayweather and the soft dream pictures of hill and river and mountain and sky were clear and away beyond anything i have ever seen for exquisiteness and daintiness the colored waiter knew his business and the colored cook was a finished artist breakfast coffee with real cream beefsteaks sausage bacon chops eggs in various ways potatoes and various yes and quite wonderful baked potatoes and hot as fire dinners all manner of things including canvas-back duck apollinaris claret champagne etc we sat up chatting till midnight going and coming seldom read a line day or night though we were well fixed with magazines etc then i finished off with a hot scotch and we went to bed and slept to nine thirty a m i honestly tried to pay my share of hotel bills fees etc but i was not allowed and i knew the reason why and respected the motive i will explain when i see you and then you will understand we were twenty-five hours going to chicago we were there twenty-four hours we were thirty hours returning brisk work but all of it enjoyable we insisted on leaving the car at philadelphia so that our waiter and cook to whom mr r gave ten dollars apiece could have their christmas eve at home mr rogers carriage was waiting for us in jersey city and deposited me at the players there that's all this letter is to make up for the three letterless days i love you dear heart i love you all samuel end of section thirty five recording by james k white chula vista